from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics and your host for today's show on girls, sex, and intimate justice. Well, we planned today's show several months ago when Peggy Orenstein's book came out, because I have to tell you, I've been dying to have her on the show, and she is today's first guest. Um, we, we didn't realize what today's headlines would be. When I was getting dressed this morning, I had the Today Show on, and right at the top of 7 o'clock, there were three headlines in a row that really struck me as poignant. Um, one enormously and appropriately top of the heap was the fact for the first time in our country's history there the presumptive presidential candidate of a major party is a woman how's that to just start your day but then they turned to the stanford rape case and also appropriately focused on the outrage that has erupted in response to the shockingly lenient six-month sentence given to a college student convicted of sexually assaulting an unconscious woman And then the next story was a mother who grabbed onto her daughter in a store to prevent her from being physically abducted while shopping. I was kind of stunned at this lineup of news items, grateful to the Today Show for bringing them to everyone's attention, but they really represented to me the complexity of this moment in time in our culture. We have unprecedented opportunity available to women and a role model like we've never had before. Yet at the same time, there is the persistent sexual assault of women, often condoned in environments and communities that we hold to the highest standards and look at to train our future leaders, and the intense desire that we have as parents to protect our kids. So as one of those mothers, and a deep believer in the power of higher education to prepare the next generation of strong leaders, um, today's guests feel right on time to me. In our first half hour, we have Peggy Orenstein, author of The Ascent. Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. And then we'll get to talk with Evan Walker-Wells and Hannah Owad, two communication and consent educators from Yale College, to talk with us about that complicated new landscape and how we can help our kids navigate their way through it. Um, So with all of that in mind, let me first start by saying, Peggy, welcome to Women at Work. I am honored to have you here. I've been a fan for a long time. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I want to start by asking you to explain a topic that I first discovered in your book. I'm going to give you credit for coining it unless you tell me otherwise. And it's the concept of intimate justice. Not mine. <laughs> okay. So where did you get it from? And tell me what it is tell, so that we can understand it and use it ourselves. Yeah. So um, Sarah McLellan, who's a psychologist at the University of Michigan, coined that term. And intimate justice is that notion that, you know, just like who does the dishes or who vacuums the rug in your home has a political component as well as a personal component. Mm -hmm. So sex has the same kinds of dynamics, and it brings up issues, as we've seen in the headlines, of emotional well-being, of personal power, of mental health, of violence, of economic disparity. And intimate justice requests that we ask, who is entitled to engage in a sexual experience? Who's entitled to enjoy it? Who's the primary beneficiary of that experience and how each partner defines good enough? And, you know, Laura, honestly, those are really difficult questions for adult women. (laughs) Yes. When we're talking about girls and their early foundational sexual experiences, 
you know, I just kept coming back to this idea that I didn't want those experiences to be something girls had to get over. In other words, that those questions of who makes these decisions are questions we don't have the right answers to yet as a society and a culture. Well, I think that we know what the answers ought to be, um, but I don't know that we've come to a place where we've enacted that. I I agree with you. Um, And one of the many things that I got from reading your book was that those questions are all too often answered by girls and boys, by women and men, as if men are the ones who get to make those decisions. And that's where the injustice comes from. Right. And that's where that lack of equity comes from. You know, there's a couple of examples of that. I mean, there's many examples in the book. (coughs) Excuse me. But one of them is, you know, the... When we talk about sex, we tend to talk about intercourse. And the truth is is that rates of intercourse and age of first intercourse have not particularly changed since the 90s. But other things have changed. And when we talk about sex as intercourse, we deny and minimize other activities that kids are engaged in, and those become not sex. And then when they're not sex, they're not subject to those rules, and they're not subject to respect. They're not subject to reciprocity. They're not subject to what we expect in terms of um, consent and coercion and all of that. So particularly oral sex, the girls would talk about as being um, no big deal when it went female to male. And I heard so many stories of girls who would say, well, it's no big deal. And, you know, there were lots of reasons why they did it, to please a boyfriend, to gain popularity, to um, get out of a sticky situation. But whatever the reason, they would say, well, but, you know, it's not such a big deal. And I would say, well, if every time you were with a guy, he wanted you to get a glass of water from the kitchen for him, and he never offered to get you a glass of water, right. or, you know, if he did, it was totally begrudging. You would never stand for that. Right. You would see the inequity in that immediately, and you would act upon it. Yeah, and they laughed, you know, and they would say, well, when you put it that way, you know. And I would think, well, why wouldn't you put it that way? Why would you be less insulted about performing a sex act than getting a glass of water? And again, this intimate justice framework of who gets to enjoy, who's the primary beneficiary. And so often for the girls, they felt entitled to engage in sexual activity, but they did not feel an equal right to enjoy that sexual activity. It's clear that they don't, and this is something that we've heard from women for years. Part of what was stunning was looking at the quantity of data that you had on this, how ubiquitous this pattern is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to take a few steps back, because you covered a lot of ground in that yeah. those few paragraphs, and I don't want to miss some of what I think are the really important points, that... Um, I think we're of a simil- that we grew up in a similar era, and when we were growing up, sex was fo- when people talked about sex, they were focusing on intercourse. The rules that we were given were about not getting pregnant, mm-hmm. and then later on, not getting a sexually transmitted disease, which many people thought you could only get via intercourse. Mm-hmm. And so, they and, still think that right, mm-hmm. and so little discussion happened about sex as a whole or all the aspects of sex and our lifetime long experience with it. Right, and. Uh, As you were saying, kids are having lots of sex if you consider all the other things that count as sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's not that intercourse is no big deal, but it's certainly not the only big deal. And, you know, one of the things that I talk about then, again, in the Intimate Justice Framework, is discussing this idea of girls and the inequity in pleasure and the inequity in engagement, is that we... um, in those conversations, you know, about intercourse and about disease and about protection, we don't talk to girls about sexual pleasure. And we have essentially silenced that conversation in girls' bodies. And for all 
the sexualization in our culture, for all that our culture is littered with female body parts and used to sell everything, we don't have these frank, honest discussions. So I, I call it the American psychological clitoridectomy. It, I, I think appropriately so. It's a real removal of um, pleasure and the power that comes from being in control of your own pleasure. Exactly, because if you're not there because it's going to feel good to you, why are you there? When I started reading that part of the book, you know, given that I'm reading it with my women at work hat on, I was mm-hmm. thinking about if we can't advocate for ourselves in our most intimate spheres of life and the ones that we physically feel so acutely, it doesn't surprise me that we don't know how to advocate for ourselves in our professional lives. Right. I, there, there is certainly a relationship. And one of the things that was really interesting to me was the girls that I was talking to, um, they were they were uh, between 15 and 20. They were all either college-bound or in college. And they were, and I chose that um, demographic because I did want to look at the girls who had the most opportunity. I wanted to look mm-hmm. at the girls that we think of as being the real, you know, beneficiaries of the feminist movement. Because if even those girls who were leaning in all over the place were toppling in their personal lives, you couldn't deny the problem. And and one of the girls said to me, you know, she was an Ivy League, uh, a junior in an Ivy League college, and lived in the Bay Area. And she said, you know, I come from generations of smart, strong women. My grandma was a firecracker. My mother, you know, is a professional, and she's smart, and she's strong. My sister and I see um, loudness as our form of feminine power. (laughs) But then when we talked about her sexual experiences, it was a series of kind of not very reciprocal, not very satisfying, not very, you know, uh, intimate, one-off hookups. And she said, you know, I guess we girls are just socialized to be deferential and not express our needs and wants. And I said, well, what? I thought you just said you were, you know, the smart, strong woman. And she said, yeah, nobody told me that smart, strong woman image applied to sex. See, and the lack of discussion is part of this problem. Absolutely. 100%. That, that we're, um, we're silenced and we we're silent. afraid and to talk about have, it and inarticulate. We, when we stopped saying, you know, don't. <laughs> right, <laughs> don't just don't. Married, we didn't really replace that with, a code of ethics and something, you know, and, and discussion with our children about how to engage in ways that were ethical, responsible, respectful, mutual, reciprocal, enjoyable, intimate, in the ways that we, you know, want them to behave. We just sort of said, here's contraception, that's what that is, here's disease protection, that's what that is, this is how babies are made, Godspeed. Right, and we're not only not having these conversations with them, but there's an enormous amount of media that's taking the place of our dialogue in shaping kids' perspectives on it. You wrote at length about the role of porn in shaping norms for boys and girls. Could you share a little bit on that? Because it just terrified me and blew me away. I know. Um, Well, you know, the Internet has been a game changer where that's concerned. And I really do encourage parents, much as I hate to ask you to do this, but if you are thinking about porn and you have not gone to Pornhub and looked at or, or a similar site and seen what you can get for free, then you're not really understanding what your kids can see. Because they're doing it. They're going on. Yeah. Why wouldn't know, they? You can't think of it the way you know we thought of like seeing Playboy or something. It's not the same thing. And it's these moving images. They can see it at a younger age. It's more explicit. It's more aggressive. And kids are seeing it regularly, particularly boys, 
um, from the time they're very young, before they've had a first kiss, before they've held hands, before they've, you know, engaged in any real-life sexual behavior, and it is it is affecting their ideas. You know, there was a, a survey of um, college students in England that found that 60% of them said that they consult porn in part for sex education, even as they know it's about as realistic as pro wrestling. So the same kids who are getting a message at home that says, don't have sex, abstain, um, even in the presence of that message, they're still the same kids who are going to go online and have all of this at their disposal, and then that's how they're educated. Well, yes, and I would say even um, beyond that, kids whose parents say, um, I mean, I think that if I had not done this work, I would have talked to my daughter about contraception and disease protection and consent. Um, but it wouldn't have occurred to me necessarily to talk about what she sees in porn, what she sees in the media, why that's mm-hmm. not realistic, and the impact that it has on their sexuality. So I think even those of us who have a more liberal perspective um, may not, because it's kind of caught us by surprise, parents realize what they're seeing, how much they're seeing. And, you know, I had girls who would say to me, um, my boyfriend, this is on the more G-rated end of the spectrum, you know, my, my boyfriend wanted to, wants to know why I don't make the noises that women make in porn when we have sex. Right, and, not realizing that they're paid to make those noises and it's scripted and exactly. it's entirely and, artificial. And I would say, you know, it's a, it's a movie, and, and movies need a soundtrack or they'll be silent movies, so... They have to do that because otherwise it would be a silent movie. It's not because they're enjoying it or because that's the noises that all women make during sex, but they don't know that because they're seeing that way before they've ever had sexual contact. And the person that I'm talking to about removing the silence from the dialogue around sex with our kids is Peregy Orenstein, the New York Times bestselling author of Cinderella Ate My Daughter, Waiting for Daisy and Schoolgirls, and the author of what I think is essential reading for every parent, Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. So Peggy, with this kind of influx of information, particularly the boys who are watching porn. Why Mm -hmm. is it affecting girls? Why don't they have the ability to tell them that's ridiculous? Is it just um, the lack of education by parents? Are there other issues going on in their dynamic that are affecting it? You know, that's a really good question, and I I don't know that I can fully answer that. But I do think, you know, the, the young woman who said we're socialized to be deferential you know, I do think that we put sort of planet sex into another um, solar system than the rest of the way that we talk to kids and our other expectations of kids. Mm-hmm. And so girls do continue to learn, you know, in the media, uh, and it's not just porn, you know, it's mainstream media too, that their role is to be desirable, yes. that their role is to please, that their role is to attract, and that, you know, that that's the ultimate for them. And so... You know, there's so much pressure on girls to be hot. Yes. And hot is this very narrow, superficial, commodified idea of what's attractive. And it tells girls that who they, how they look is, how their body looks is more important than how that body feels to them. Yes, and there was language that you gave to this that I really appreciated because I am having these debates with my daughter on a regular basis. I bet. Um, particularly mm-hmm. as I'm like, no, you're not going to school dressed like that. Yeah. And and I will say with tremendous pride, I find her to be um, grounded, not surprisingly articulate about gender issues, but wants to look fabulous. Yeah. And, and she thinks that she is 
embracing her own power by looking fabulous. Right. So that's exactly it. So in, whereas in our generation, we would have considered that pressure to be to self-sexualize, to be a form of objectification mm-hmm. and kind of anti-feminist. Today's girls are sold objectification as a, a source of power and confidence. And so one young woman said to me, showed me a picture of herself in a crop top and a short skirt and, you know, the high heels and said, I'm proud of my body and I never feel more liberated than when I wear skimpy clothing. And then a few minutes later, she said she wouldn't have worn that outfit a year earlier because, as she put it, some jerky boy would have called me the fat girl and that would have been bad for my mental health. So then you have to ask, well, you know, who gets to be proud of what body and under what circumstances <laughs> right. and who decides and how liberating is it if humiliation lurks around the corner. So all that we know about self-objectification, about how it encourages body monitoring, how it encourages negative body image, how it encourages lack of sexual satisfaction. And if those girls that I was talking to who expressed you know, the power of hot if that resulted in them being more satisfied sexually, more in touch with their body, more in touch with their feelings, more able to say yes when they wanted to, to say no when they wanted to, I would say, okay, you and I, Laura, we are old and need to shut up. Right, but that's clearly not not what's happening. No, the confidence is coming off with the clothes. And you, um, you talk at length in the book, um, and this is part of why I think this is required reading, about what's going on in college culture sexually mm-hmm. and the relationship between sex and drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the quotes that uh, there were so many. I underlined so many parts in the book, but one in particular said, every girl knows that when you walk into a frat house, your most valuable asset is your sex appeal. Mm-hmm. So at the same time that we're looking at colleges as communities to help our kids develop, prepare for their professional lives, develop a network of friends and potential professional partners, th- their engagement in alcohol-fueled sexual relationships that are often dangerous and degrading is happening at a rate that I never would have imagined possible. Yeah, you know, one thing that surprised me was the um, names of the frat parties. <laughs> yeah, share some of those. <laughs> I'm trying to think if I can remember any of They were all variations. Um, the like I've heard were once, girls as prostitutes. Yeah, so CEOs like, and their hoes. Yeah, CEOs and, you know, something hoes. Uh, uh, Conquista bros and Navajos. Um, uh, army something. I, they're all bros and hoes. It's right. And yoga, you know, yoga hoes, whatever it is. It's hoes, hoes, hoes. And I'm thinking... Your parents are paying how much for you to be called a prostitute? Right. You know? And also at this st- this age and stage of growing agency, yeah. that when it comes to the social dynamic, girls are so afraid of being left out of a social life, yep. labeled right. and, and as if your choice is to be a slut or a prude, right. and that that's the language that they use, right. that it's they're negative. acquiescing. Mm-hmm. To this culture, because they don't have an alter, they don't have another way to be highly engaged socially. Well, it was you know some girls would talk about liking this culture and saying that they didn't want to have serious relationships. They wanted to be able to be, you know, um, to hook up, and others, you know, felt that the hookup scene was degrading. Um, there was a whole lot of ways that they related to it, but they all had to have. They all had to define themselves in relationship to it Mm -hmm. and to decide, you know, whether they wanted to be in that kind of social world or whether they wanted to be, you know, home on a Saturday night or or what was going to happen to them. Because 
when when we talk about hookup culture, what we mean is the idea that intimacy proceeds rather than derives from, in, uh, I mean, sort of sexual, sexual behavior proceeds rather than derives from intimacy. Right. And despite so, my deep conviction that intimacy should be the precondition, yes. emotional intimacy should be the precondition yes. for physical intimacy, I, I'm willing to just put on a shelf for now that hookup culture may have its values. Right. And, let's, and let's as just, like, Let's just not judge. I mean, uh, right. I, I'm I not agree with judge. you. I feel the same way. That is my value. But I was not, you know, what I wanted to tell girls was, okay, if you're going to go into this culture, be informed and yes. recognize what you will, probably will, and probably won't get out of this. Right, because then... what you probably will get out of it is a warm body, a war story, you know, tomorrow morning, an adrenaline rush, a feeling of being desired and attractive for a few hours, but you're not going to get a text tomorrow. What you're probably not going to get is good sex or the tools you need to have either good sex or emotional intimacy. Right. And even more disconcerting is that um, while the Stanford case is getting a unique kind of attention right now, um, your book, which went to press months ago, if not a year yeah. ago, um, documents and and presents a great deal of data on the ubiquitousness of that dynamic. Yep. And the ways that that party culture um, is both fun because it is, I mean, the whole, the, the thing about the alcohol is that it, the hookup culture is not just fueled by alcohol, it's, it's dependent on it mm -hmm. um, to create what one sociologist called to me um, compulsory carelessness. Yes. And so you have to drink in order to, you know, lose feeling so that you don't care. And the culture that's held out as fun, that party culture, which can be legitimately fun, also becomes a cover for assault. Yes, and so, so that's the, the kind of thing that we see um, in that Stanford case. And, you know, it appears prescient. It may appear that I'm prescient, but honestly, those cases, it's just the names that change. You know, I mean, if my book <laughs> came out right before the St. Paul's case or right during that right. case, you'd think I was prescient then. If it came out during Steubenville, you'd think I was prescient <laughs> then. There, it's always there. And also, it wasn't that you were prescient. You actually collected a great deal of data. So yeah, since we're war... I, I could offer, because I've been around for a while now... Um, <laughs> is the long view of how this discussion has been playing out um, since it really first uh, burst on the scene, which was in the late 1980s. Yeah, you did a really good job of documenting that history. I yeah. have a question, though, just because we're the Wharton School. Um, how did you collect your data for the book? Um, the data for the, of, of the girls, you mean? Or of the, the, the girls' stories and the big research studies that you pulled from. Um, well, I just, I mean, the research studies, I just read everything. I mean, I read everything that's out there, and I look through them, and I see, you know, what, what's being said about them, how they're being picked apart, what um, their strengths and weaknesses are. And with the um, assault stuff, there's just such a um, large amount of data now. You know, Clearly. people will attack this study, they'll attack that study, but after a while, you've got to go, hey. <laughs> yes. And as a matter of fact, one of the things I appreciated was um, in the notes section of the book, you refer to all of your sources yeah. and you present the data um, very clearly and it's compelling. Um, yeah. And so I encourage other people to look at it as well. Um, yeah, it was important for me to do that. And the girls, you know, I got them in all kinds of ways, friends of friends of friends of friends. I, you know, when I, I speak on college campuses a lot, I would ask the school to do an email blast that I was coming to campus and work on this project, and if anybody wanted to talk to me, they should email me, and I always had more people than I could possibly 
talk to. Uh, and, um, and in that process, you got a whole range of stories and people. And I'm talking with Peggy Orenstein, author of Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. Um, and Peggy, in this book, with all these stories that you gathered from these girls, um, one of the many things I appreciated was that at the end of it, you got to a point of what can we do about this? How can we teach our kids differently? And I love the section that was called Going Dutch. Could you share a little bit with us about what that means and why that implies something different than what going Dutch meant when we were kids? Yeah, you know, the, the Dutch um, have a very different way of doing things than we do. And one of the things that really intrigued me was looking at the way that uh, Dutch female college students and American female college students talk about their early sexual experiences and that in every measure, whether you're talking about more positive outcomes, you know, like your partner very well or um, uh, uh, enjoying yourself or having a better body image or more uh, fewer negative con- mm-hmm. uh, consequences like pregnancy, disease, regret, drunkenness. The Dutch are way ahead. And the difference was Dutch parents, teachers, and doctors talk to their kids from an early age, very frankly, in age-appropriate ways about sexuality, and particularly the parents. It wasn't that Dutch parents were more comfortable talking about sex necessarily, but this, and this part really got to me as a parent myself, rather, American parents tend to, when they talk to their kids, um, talk exclusively about risk and danger. And Dutch parents talk about balancing responsibility and joy. It's a fundamental difference. It's a fundamental difference, and I know that as a mom myself of a, of a 13-year-old, that if I had not done this research, I would have talked to my daughter about contraception, about disease protection, about consent, because I'm very modern, you know, and I would have thought, job well done, Peggy. Right, but you wouldn't have included those other components, which I would not. also happen to be listed in what you refer to as the ABCD model. Mm-hmm. And with just the minute that we have left, can you walk us through what those things are? Well, I think the main thing, you know, if we just get to A, that's good. Um, <laughs> Is, sexual, is that we want sexual autonomy. You know, we want our, our daughters to be able to um, understand. We want them to know their bodies. We want them to be able to articulate their needs, limits, and desires and expect those to be met. met. We want them to be able to um, engage sexually on their own terms with reciprocity, with mutuality, with intimacy, if that's what they want, you know, with all these things. And, and to get there, we have, we have to talk frankly to our kids. And I know that in American culture, that's weird. I know that in American culture, kids plug their ears and hum when we talk about sex. But we love our kids. But we love our kids, and you have to keep your eye on the long game, which is wanting your daughter to have positive, happy, you know, connected, engaged sexual experiences. And how are we going to get there? And I'll tell you the way we're not going to get there. That's by silence. Absolutely. Peggy, thank you so much for joining us and breaking the silence on it here at Women at Work. It's been a thrill to have you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Laura. Um, We'll be back shortly in our next half hour where we talk about how to fix this on college campuses.